his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. And I stumbled along a guy by the name of Rick Bigelow. He's a patent attorney. Now, there's not too many of them because to be a patent attorney... You not only have to know the law, you have to be a scientist of some measure, some note. Because you've got to analyze everything that comes before you and be comfortable with all of that. And then we find out Rick Bigelow has another talent beyond his scientific and legal knowledge. And that is history. And I, I, I've, I love when he's here. And I love when we get to talk to him, uh, but he is back. Rick Bigelow, how are you? Doing fine, Bob. I'm glad to be with you. Well, uh, you had suggested that we look at uh, Operation Desert Storm back in 1990, uh, setting the stage. Uh, Saddam Hussein had gone into Kuwait and... He just saw it as an opportunity. And now this is August 2nd. I remember it well. I'll tell you why. I was uh, seeking investment to buy a group of radio stations. And as soon as that idiot Saddam went in, there were no investments going to be made, period. Because nobody knew what was going to happen. So all the investment bankers says, Bob, call us in a couple of years. <laughs> so Saddam screwed me. <laughs> so so give us some background on Iraq, because a lot of people don't know that it was a creation of the British, essentially. Yep, that's right. Yeah, it, it didn't even really exist as a country until about 1920, after World War One. Because back then, most of the uh, Arabian Peninsula and and what we know as the Middle East was all part of the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottomans sided with the Germans in World War One. They lost, and they lost a lot of their territories and their empire. So the British came in and and uh, just drew a bunch of lines on uh, on the map and said, okay, this is Iraq, this is Saudi Arabia, this is Kuwait, this is Jordan – uh, so on and so forth. And so they really didn't have much uh, much of a, a sense of nationhood. Uh, they were tribal. Rick Bigelow, would Iraq be the most distorted of these nations? I mean, it was 
It, it didn't end up being run by Sunnis who were in the vast minority. Right. You had the Kurds in the north. Right. You had this uh, Shia uh, Muslim group that was the predominant portion of the populace. Now, at that time, pre-Ayatollah Khomeini, they didn't care if they were in charge politically. It wasn't part of their credo. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it really was slapped together. Right. And and there wasn't a lot unifying the country. So it was it was kind of a uh, a nation by looking at a map, but there was no sense of unity uh, for the most part. So anyway, uh, when Khomeini took over in Iran in 1979 with the revolution, uh, that's when Saddam Hussein decided to invade Iran uh, because there had always been this longstanding uh, conflict between the Persians, uh, who were mostly Shiite uh, Muslims, and the uh, Sunnis, which was primarily the Saudis and and um, some segment of the population in Iraq. So he had an eight-year war from 1980 to 88, and Iraq went from being a very prosperous country to a broke country. And so they, they were given money by the Kuwaitis and by the Saudis and by other Arab nations during the Iran-Iraq war. When the war ended, the subsidies stopped. So uh, Iraq was broke. They looked to their very prosperous neighbor to the south, and they had always considered that Kuwait really should have been part of Iraq because historically it was uh, one of the uh, one of the provinces under the Ottoman Empire and so on and so forth. So uh, they felt they had legitimate claims to it. And uh, when the Kuwaitis stopped giving the money, Saddam Hussein uh, invaded on August 2nd of 1990. So that set off all kinds of uh, alarm bells in the Western world because so much of the oil was coming out of the Persian Gulf, and a lot of it was coming from Kuwait. And at the time, we were a net importer of oil, as were a lot of the other major economies in in Europe and Japan and Korea and so on and so forth. So this was a big deal. Uh, After he went into Kuwait with such ease, they were very concerned that he was going to keep on going into Saudi Arabia. So that's when uh, Bush uh, formed this coalition to to basically ensure that Saudi Arabia was defended. And amazingly, the, the king of Saudi Arabia agreed to it. So we started bringing uh, hundreds of thousands of troops and all kinds of equipment and so on and so forth into Saudi Arabia to make sure that Saddam Hussein didn't uh, continue his, his invasion and take over the Saudi oil fields, which would have meant if he did that, he would have controlled about 40 percent of, of the world's oil. Uh, so we we come into the fall of, uh, of 1990. Uh, we're pretty sure that he's not going to invade Saudi Arabia. And there were discussions at the U.N. and all kinds of back channels and so on about what we should do here. And in November of uh, 1990, the security, U.N. Security Council passed a resolution by a 12 to 2 vote that said Saddam Hussein and Iraq has to leave Iraq by, uh, pardon me, leave Kuwait by January 15th of 1991, or else we'll force him out. Uh, So we continued to build up our forces. In in the fall of 1990, we had enough to, 
to have a defensive campaign against any Iraqi incursion into Saudi Arabia, but we needed to get a lot more in order to uh, mount an offensive campaign. Rick Bigel, so let's, continue- go, let's go back uh, to, and I, I, I wanted to skip over it, but I don't think we can. Uh, back in July, we had an ambassador to Iraq by the name of April Glaspie. Right. And she basically says, we don't care what you do. <laughs> and it yeah. sends all the wrong signals to Hussein, who then says, well, geez, the United States is not going to do anything about it. Let me go. Let me go take care of Kuwait. Right. Uh, April Glaspie was, was called in to uh, meet with Saddam Hussein. And on instructions from the State Department, she was uh, she told that, uh, who's saying that, you know, it's an Arab thing and we really don't think we should be involved with uh, disputes with the Arabs. Uh, uh, so so <laughs> you're right. Basically, uh, that told Saddam Hussein that the U.S. wasn't going to do anything, which was his first major miscalculation of the, the whole affair. Well, I mean, he was right to calculate that way after the ambassador said so. Right. And, and I think his calculus was uh, the United States is just a paper tiger. Uh, they got their butts kicked in Vietnam. The American public would never stand for uh, another uh, foreign adventure uh, thousands of miles away from the United States. And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, there was some justification for that philosophy. Uh, and, you know, the Soviet Union was in decline at this point in time, and, and so he just didn't see any downside. Yeah. All right, so he goes he, he, he goes all out August 3rd, and then Bush ordered U.S. troops to Saudi Arabia in response. He says right. they're under imminent threat. The U.K. follows immediately, and Desert Shield begins. Right. So I, and, and I think you have to give uh, George H.W. Bush a lot of credit for building this coalition, which wasn't just the uh, British, but we got the French to come along, too, and, and several African nations and the Saudis and the Qataris and the Bahrainis. And uh, there was there was widespread. Uh, it, we even had troops from Afghanistan come in and uh, and support the, the coalition at this point in time. And, mm. and I think Bush did a masterful job yeah. of creating this coalition and holding it together. So we, we get to January 15th, uh, and that's there were all kinds of back-channel discussions and uh, discussions at the U.N. Uh, trying to get Saddam Hussein to agree to leave. And he would kind of agree for a while and then say, well, no, I have certain conditions and and uh, so uh, we had a vote in, in the Congress uh, that authorized uh, U.S. troops to go to war in the Middle East. And the, the ho- vote in the House was 250 to 183 in favor. In the Senate, it was much closer as 52 to 47. And, of course, at this time, it was all Democrats. It was democratically controlled. And once again, it's amazing that Bush was able to pull this off. So not only did he create this international well, we just, coalition. We just played uh, Bill Clinton talking about the border 
it's a very different Democrat party than today. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so January 15th comes and goes. And then early in the morning on January 16th, uh, Operation Desert Storm commences. And what followed was approximately oh, six weeks of almost nonstop air attacks against the Iraqi positions in Kuwait and also in, uh, in Iraq itself. In fact, we, uh, this is where the, uh, the stealth fighter first came into use. Uh, going right downtown into Baghdad and taking out all the, not all, but a lot of the command and control, radar, intelligence, all that sort of stuff that uh, that the Iraqis had situated in, in in Baghdad. And at the same time, we were, we, we focused initially on taking out what, what's known as their command and control, their radar sites, uh, some of their SAM sites, so on and so forth. And this and is it wasn't this a, is pre-smart bomb. I mean, well, this is we, almost well, at least what we understand of today. There was not precision munitions at any level we we understand and see today. I mean, it was sort yeah, of pretty actually, conventional. It was, it was the early days of of uh, precision guided yeah. weapons, and, and in fact, one of the interesting stories about this is this is where we first started to see what the the cruise missiles could do. Yeah. And many of the cruise missiles were launched from Navy ships. And, of course, they were going over the desert, and these were terrain-guided terrain uh, missiles. So they had to vector them over Iran, over the mountains in Iran, so that they could get a good bearing. <laughs> so hmm. they, they fired them into Iran. They turned around and went uh, into Iraq, into Baghdad. And so on and so forth. So, uh, it it was. It, I think if a cruise missile had gone down in Iran, it would have been big news. <laughs> so, uh, Operation Desert Storm commences, and the Iraqi military that we built up. I think our media, anyway, in our minds, as incredibly formidable. A million troops. You know, 5,000 tanks, 200 helicopters, 900 airplanes, and they had a, you know, a couple dozen naval vessels. They were all deeply, deeply entrenched, and there was a lot of concern that this would be our Waterloo. Were we ready? You know, we're just, you know, we're still suffering the effects of Vietnam. Was there a new generation ready to do things? And... All of this hangs in the balance, and we'll come back with Rick Bigelow after this to talk about the initial assault. We'll be back. It's the Bob Cadaro Show. Rick Bigelow's our guest. Desert Storm is our subject. Uh, our f- friend of the program, uh, a great friend of the program, and our Monday Musings guy, John Perillo, tells me, uh, Rick Bigelow, he says, as a side note, they would not start the ground war until we had built a 500-bed hospital uh, on, a, on a ship, and uh, John was part of that whole thing. It was really meticulously planned, was it not? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And we, didn't have, I mean, we, we didn't have that kind of uh, major operation in, in a long, long time, and we crept into... Vietnam. This was a buildup within a, you know, just a number of months. 
That's right. Uh, You know, as as amazing as it was in World War Two with the the logistics, uh, it was equally amazing in in the Gulf region. And, you know, you you talk about Vietnam and I think at the max we had something like five hundred and fifty thousand troops in Vietnam. Well, we had six hundred thousand in in and around uh, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, getting ready to go into Kuwait and into Iraq. And that doesn't count. You know, we probably had another 100,000 Marines and sailors on ships off the the coast. And we had uh, more in the Red Sea and we had uh, more troops on uh, on Navy ships in the in the Mediterranean and so on and so forth. So you know what, uh, to Rick Bigelow, we were blessed with incredible leadership. Uh, both in the, the civilian side and starting with President Bush and and then on the military side with Colin Powell and uh, Ad, or General Schwarzkopf. And I mean, I remember, you know, they're facing these what appeared to be millions of entrenched people. They could remember they called his elite troops and they're entrenched. Right, and we started dropping the B fifty two start dropping bombs, and their eardrums were exploding literally in the trenches. And I, I had yeah, to be saying, uh, "This is Allah." <laughs> well, and I I think one of the things to remember is the uh, the frontline troops along the uh, along the Kuwait Saudi Arabian border were mostly conscripts. Yeah, uh, and. And a lot of them were Shiite, and and they weren't really big fans of Saddam. And I think it, it was almost like press gangs in England in the 16 and 1700s. Yeah. They'd come by and say, you have to uh, join the military, or else we're going to persecute your family. But they'd uh, so, seen, they'd s- neither saw or experienced anything like the military power that we brought to bear. And then I, I just remember... Uh, Schwarzkopf talking about it, and he said, "Well, they're in these trenches, so we just decided to go around them." <laughs> we went around some of, and and uh, you know, frankly, especially our, our tanks and our artillery was so far superior to what the Iraqis had that we could hit them at long range, and they couldn't hit us. Yeah. Basically, so we got to wipe a lot of them out, and. And of course, with the the helicopters, the Black Hawk helicopters, and so on and so forth, we went in with overwhelming force. And you know, for guys like uh, Colin Powell and, and Schwarzkopf, they had uh, served in Vietnam, and and, and they just weren't going to go unless we went in with overwhelming force. So that that was that was their condition. And I the original plan uh, was to keep around three or 400,000 troops in Saudi Arabia and go right up uh, into Kuwait city. And that's what the, uh, that's what the Iraqis expected. Instead, we put all these forces out into the, into the desert and made what uh, Schwarzkopf called his left hook and, and uh, attacked Kuwait city and Kuwait from, uh, from several different directions, but it was just overwhelming. And it wasn't just us. It was, uh, it was British, and they had some first-line tanks, and the French had some real good tanks. And on the uh, eastern front, there were a bunch of uh, Saudi tanks and also tanks from uh, 
Oman and Bahrain and and uh, other uh, of the United Arab Emirates and so on and so, so forth. And those were the ones who actually went into Kuwait, along with the first and second Marine Division. My so, uh, uh, a buddy of mine, uh, uh, Booker uh, Butler, is, well, he was a tanker in the army, and uh, we we loved our tank battles. Well, one of the largest tank battles since World War II took place during this confrontation. Right. In fact, there were three major tank battles, and uh, we came out on top by a decided advantage in, in all three of them. And we we basically destroyed much of, uh, of Saddam Hussein's uh, tank uh, capabilities. But the unfortunate thing about it was a lot of the Republican Guard escaped yeah. uh, back up into Iraq. And uh, within a couple of days, we had taken uh, Kuwait, uh, taken Kuwait City, and we pretty much uh, had liberated Kuwait within a couple of days. And the, the the second part of the plan was to to basically destroy the Republican Guard. And we didn't quite get to do that. Uh, I think the information we had was most of the Republican Guard had been destroyed. But that's not what happened. And, of course, 12 years later, we were back kind of doing the same thing against the Republican Guard. Under more questionable I, circumstances. I yeah, I, it, <laughs> let me add one, one thing about the Scuds. You know, the, the, their, their biggest uh, advantage they had was their Scud missiles, which weren't particularly good. Uh, and they were erratic. They, they couldn't be controlled very well. But they sent, oh, maybe 90 Scud missiles. Uh, into Saudi Arabia and also uh, into Israel. And what Saddam Hussein was trying to do there was uh, get the Israelis to come into the war, because if the Israelis came into the war, most of the uh, other Arab nations would probably leave. They would leave the coalition. So uh, it was smart on his part. But once again, you got to give George Bush credit. Yeah because he talked to the Israeli uh, prime minister and said, uh, don't come in because this thing is going to be over if you do. And besides, you can't do anything that we're not already doing. So you got to give him a lot of credit for that. Rick, I, Rick Bigelow, I remember thoughts at the time. Everybody thought that the most efficient and lethal military, for smaller scale, obviously, though, was Israel. And I think we demonstrated that the United States was by far the most efficient military in the world. Yeah, a lot bigger. Uh, and, you know, basically our weapons were across the board as good or much better than, than what the Israelis had. I mean, Israel's a small nation. Yeah. And uh, they, don't have, they don't have a huge standing army. Uh, ours was was much bigger and you know we took our we took our army halfway across the world and uh, and uh, put them in the desert which we weren't prepared for and uh, we adapted and and uh, we beat a fairly large army although it was like you said it was blown out of proportions by the by the media one one other thing about the scuds uh, the scud missile that shot into uh, the center of Iraq hit a U.S. Uh, base, and it killed oh, something on the order of seven. I think it was like seventy or so uh, American soldiers. That was they were all from a an Army Reserve unit from Western Pennsylvania, mm. 
and they were there as part of a water purification unit. So they were several hundred miles behind the, the front lines, and that just showed in the era of missiles everybody's on the front lines. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's safe. Uh, Rick Bigelow, we're going to take a break. We got our veterans tribute. I just wanted you, we'll go over the aftermath of all of this, uh, when we return, but, uh, Rick Bigelow is our guest. Operation desert storm is our subject. It's the Bob Cadaro show. So Rick McCormick is our, or Rick Bigelow rather is our guest. I'm thinking of Dave McCormick, our Senate candidate. And we're talking about the first Gulf war. And, and Rick, what was, give us the aftermath, at least militarily. Well, uh, the, uh, the statistics on the, uh, on the fatalities was, was amazing. We had about 149 uh, KIA, and, and many of them came from that one scud strike deep into Saudi Arabia. On the other hand, uh, the, uh, the Iraqis, uh, the original estimates were they lost between 60 and 100,000. Uh, that was reduced to probably 25 to, uh, to 30,000. Uh, the one bad thing about it, like I said before, was uh, a lot of the Republican Guard escaped back into Iraq. And there was all kinds of discussion about, well, we should have just followed them right up into, into Baghdad and, and bombed them on the way. But I think it's absolutely clear that uh, if we had continued up into uh, into Baghdad and tried to take out Saddam Hussein, much of the coalition would have deserted uh, because they were all for uh, getting Iraq out of Kuwait, but they didn't want to see regime change in, in the Middle East. So I, I can't really fault uh, what they did if they would have uh, – Oh, uh, kept going for another 12 to 24 hours. Maybe they could have taken out a lot more of the Republican Guard. So you on, remember on what March was the 3rd, highway of death? I remember yeah, that, that so the, well. That as they were retreating, we could have really killed a lot of people. And I, I, I thought, yeah, we should. But at the same point, I understand understood the humanity of not killing these fleeing troops. The sad part is you knew they were going to go back to Iraq and terrorize their own people. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, after the the uh, treaty or the end of the war was was uh, signed, the ceasefire, actually, uh, one of the unintended consequences, uh, the, uh, the Iraqi generals asked Schwarzkopf if uh, – they could uh, keep their helicopters because all the roads and railroads had been bombed out and they needed to have helicopters so that they could uh, communicate and, you know, take uh, wounded to hospitals and so on and so forth. So Schwarzkopf said, sure, you can keep the helicopters. They used the helicopters to basically kill the Shiite uh, majorities in the, in the southern part of Iraq and to, uh, basically rained terror down on the Kurds in the northern part of Iraq. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, we were hoping that uh, that there would be popular uprisings there, and there were, and that they would uh, they would actually depose Saddam Hussein. But uh, he was pretty brutal in putting down these uprisings. And there's there's no doubt that, that more Iraqis and Kurds were killed uh, by Saddam Hussein putting down these uprisings 
and were killed by the coalition forces in in the war. And and uh, so that was Rick Bigelow. As you reflect on it, was it a mistake not to to go further? I think if we could have kept going for another twelve hours or so, uh, we could have taken out a lot of the Republican Guard. Uh, yeah. Would they have reconstituted? Yeah, probably. Uh, but I, I think from a from a humanitarian and from an American view, uh, we did the right thing. In fact, there are stories of a lot of our chopper pilots and, and pilots who were just uh, laying waste to everything along the, the highway of death. They didn't like doing it. Yeah, uh, It was one thing to, to engage in a fair fight, but this was sort of like a, a slaughter. It was just like the, the Marianas turkey shoot. Yeah. Uh, against the Japanese in the Philippine Sea. Uh, yeah, after a while, uh, it, it, it's not honorable uh, combat. It was just a slaughter. So th- the interesting thing about it is within a few years, uh, Bush and, and uh, Margaret Thatcher were out of office and Saddam Hussein, uh, was, Hussein still- <laughs> was still in power. <laughs> it's in fact, uh. it, 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 in a lot of uh, chutzpah, Saddam Hussein declared that he had won a great victory. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't care how many of my people get killed giving me that victory. Yeah, Exactly. Rick Bigelow, thank you so much. It was good to revisit Desert Storm and the first Gulf War. Thank you as always, and we look forward to your next next lecture. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Bob, I'm I'm thinking uh, maybe in a couple weeks we'll talk about MacArthur. In, in World War II, because March 12th of 1942 is when he, quote unquote, escaped from Corregidor. One of my favorite, <laughs> MacArthur's one of the most complex and interesting characters. Uh, I, I, I'll talk about him anytime. Thank you, Rick Bigelow. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Anytime, Bob. All right. We'll take a break. Bob Cadaro, WILK, we will return. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Why? Why? If you have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. 